Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and today I'd like to share with you some insights and ideas to help you to either teach or study Acts chapter 6 through 9 with relevancy and power. And I'd like to begin just by thanking you for spending this time with me this week. I know that teaching can be challenging, and sometimes you just need an idea or an insight to help get the ball rolling. Well, I hope to provide you with some of that, and I pray that the Spirit will be with us as we learn from the Scriptures together. So if you're ready, grab your Scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. And there's a theme to this week's lesson that flows through many of the stories in this week's chapters. So to introduce that theme for an icebreaker, an object lesson. And what you'll need for this is uh, two packages of unpopped microwave popcorn, a bowl, and a microwave. And you can start by holding up a packet and asking if anybody would like some popcorn. More than likely, you're going to get a lot of enthusiastic yeses. And so you say, all right, well, let me give you some. And you take one of the packets and rip it open. And inside, you're going to find a big, disgusting mess of oil and kernels and salt. And I've done this object lesson before, and it looks really, really unappetizing. <laughs> and you ask, all right, who's hungry? Anybody interested? And I can guarantee you that nobody is going to want to eat that. And why not? Now, the answer's obvious. It's not popped. It's not ready. It, it doesn't look good. It needs to undergo a transformation. And only then will it become what we want it to be. It's got the potential, the. And this, this I explain, is sometimes like us. Sometimes we might manage to make a real mess out of our lives through poor decisions, our pride, addictions, laziness, hatred, selfishness, any other number of vices. We muddle things up to the point that we may look down at our lives and despair. The good news, though, is that we don't have to remain that way. The potential to transform our lives into something better is there. But we're going to need some power. Not our power, but God's power. And at this moment, I point to the microwave. But, but God's, God's not going to use his power over us without our permission. We've got to make the conscious decision to place ourselves within his power. But when we do that, and, and here you, you place the other unopened packet into the microwave and turn it on. When we do that, something miraculous can happen. With time and patience, a transformation, a change will begin to take place with God's power, His grace, His mercy, His counsel and help. And, and, and as you're talking, eventually the popcorn should start popping. And as we do that, we become different, better, happier. Our lives will become what they can and should be. And when the popcorn is done popping, you can pull it out and open the bag and pour it into the bowl. And that, that delicious popcorn smell is going to fill the room. 
mouths will begin to water. And you may even want to eat a little bit in front of them and say, hmm, this is, this is much better than trying to eat it before the change. So if we ever get to the point where we notice that our lives have become a spiritual mess, I hope that we can remember this popcorn parable. We either need to be popped or eventually we're just going to go back. And, and of course, at some point during the lesson, you might want to share some popcorn with your classes. Well, this week in Come Follow Me, we're going to study some transformational truths by taking a look at the lives of a number of different individuals in Acts chapter 6 through 9. And we're going to start by looking closely at the characteristics of two very different people in the book of Acts. One of them was named Saul, and the other was named Paul. We're going to compare and contrast these two men. And you can help your students do this by having them work together or on their own on the following secret phrase activity. Fill in the boxes, and that will help you to discover the secret phrase down at the bottom. And we're going to start here with Saul. What, what do we know about him? And Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. Stephen was an early church leader, and the Jewish council, we'll take a look at the story later, they stoned him to death. Well, Saul was there consenting, uh, cheering them on, so to speak. He made havoc of the church. Hailing men and women, he committed them to prison. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, that he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. How much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. He did many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then when they, the disciples, were put to death, I gave my voice against them. This is, this is him speaking. I persecuted them, even unto strange cities. That now, I believe that paints a pretty clear picture of the kind of man that Saul is. He's not just indifferent to the church. He actively fights against it. He's, he's one of the great villains of the early Christian church, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the believers. Let's take a look at our other individual now, Paul. What kind of a man was he? What was he like? Paul preached Christ in the synagogues. He is a chosen vessel unto Jesus. He must suffer great things for Jesus' name's sake. He was willing to do that for Jesus' name. And he spake boldly in the name of Christ. He was filled with the Holy Ghost. 
And then this last one sends your students to the back uh, of, of their Bible, to the, the maps section, and they're going to look up map number 13. And by observing that map and looking at the title, they'll be able to fill in the blank. He served many missions is the correct word. So Paul is an amazing benefit to the early Christian church, one of the great heroes of the church, perhaps its greatest missionary. In fact, you could make the argument that without Paul, Christianity probably wouldn't have survived in the ancient world. No Paul, no Christianity. Now, as you look at those two lists, it's easy to see just how different these two men were from each other. Polar opposites. But then, as a teacher, I'd ask my students, does anybody know what the connection was between these two men? Because they knew each other. Ra rather well, in fact. How? And if they don't know this already, or if you don't know this already, you could just go to Acts chapter 13, verse 9, and discover what their relationship is. Uh, it's clearly spelled out. Then Saul, who also is called Paul. So the answer to our question is, how did they know each other? They were the same person. In a way, Saul becomes Paul. Yet, in a sense, truthfully, they, they really were two different people. Saul was transformed. He becomes converted. That's, that's one of the definitions of, of that word, of conversion. It's to change something into something else. And that's what happens in Saul's or Paul's life. Saul, the persecutor, became Paul, the preacher. And I think that's why there's a name change in the scriptures here. Since Paul has become a new person, he gets a new name. Kind of like when, when Abram became Abraham after making a covenant with God. Jacob became Israel. Or kind of like when we receive a new name in the temple. After we make certain covenants or commitments to God, in a way, we're not the same person anymore. Therefore, we get a new name. Therefore, what's the principle? What's a truth that Paul's life teaches us? It's our secret phrase. People can change. If somebody as bad as Saul the persecutor can go to somebody as good as Paul the preacher, then anybody can change. And why, why do you think that's an important truth for us to understand? Why did God make sure that this story was in the scriptures. My thoughts? It's important for us to know this truth because it brings hope, either for ourselves or the people that we love. People can change. Anybody has hope. Somebody might look like a salt right now, but if you keep your faith, there may be a Paul in there after all. If you'd seen my grandma, when she was a teenager, if you had seen my grandpa for the majority of his adult life, 
if you had met a lot of the people that I taught on my mission, you might have been tempted to think that they were spiritually hopeless. But they changed and became some of the most Christ-like people I've ever known. And this truth may also become important for ourselves someday. There may come a day when we feel that we've gone too far down the wrong path. A day when we look down at our lives and, and all we see is that unpopped bag of popcorn mess. And we despair. We've got to remember Paul at those times. There's a way out. If he could change, then, then anybody can. Then we can change. Now, Paul, Paul's an extreme example, but I think that God knew we needed a couple of stories like this in the scriptures, like Paul's or Alma the Younger's, so that we would know that even the worst of people can not only change, but become great. They can become powerful instruments in God's hands, regardless of their past. Paul was the greatest missionary that ever lived. But just look at how he started. If he could change, so can you, so can anybody. You don't have to remain the same. You can be transformed or converted. And let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into that process now. How did that happen? And here, maybe another quick icebreaker that you could do. You can ask if there's anybody in your class who knows how to do a 180, either on a skateboard or a wakeboard or snowboard. Uh, how do you change directions on one of those things? Or if you have one, you might consider bringing in a skateboard and, and asking if there's anybody in your class that could demonstrate a 180 for you. Spiritually speaking, this is what happened with Paul. He did a spiritual 180 and completely changed the direction of his life. But how did that take place? And two possibilities here as teachers. You can either read Acts 9, 1 through 22 together, or you could show the Bible video that the church has made of this story. And I feel they did a really good job with that. I'll provide you with a link. But sometimes it's just good to allow your students to simply experience the scripture story for themselves uh, without a lot of extra instructions or activity. But just have them read it or watch the video with one simple question in mind. How did Paul do a 180? What made it possible for him to change? And I'm not going to read through the entire story here, but I invite you to do that. And then after reading or watching the video, allow your class to share their thoughts to the question. If they need a little prodding, though, here are a few suggested discussion questions that you might consider asking. Question number one, how do you imagine the tone of voice in Christ's question in verse four? Angry, condemning, loving, pleading, sad, or other? And there's, there's no right or wrong answer here because we don't, we don't get tone of voice in the scriptures. But personally, 
I feel that that voice must have been incredibly loving and tender. I don't think any other kind of voice could have wrought such a mighty change in somebody like Saul's heart. I can't imagine it being said with anything other than the utmost love and compassion. No matter how hard I try, I don't think I ever get the tone of voice in that statement right when I read it. I really wish I could. But, but I imagine it being something like, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? There was something in that voice that would change Paul's heart. And Paul would change the world. And perhaps there's a message in there about change, a transformational truth. It's the same lesson that was taught by uh, the story of the woman taken in adultery. People are more likely to change through love than condemnation. We should keep that in mind uh, when there are people in our lives that, that we want to help to change. Question number two. What do you make of the phrase, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks? What truth do you feel that statement teaches? And you can explain that a prick in this sense was a sharp stick or a goad that people in Saul's day would use to move animals. And what would happen to an animal that decided to kick back against those sharp sticks? It would hurt them. It would do them no good. So, so why would the Lord say this? Uh, two thoughts, uh, two possible interpretations in, in my mind. One way to look at it is that Christ is saying to Saul that it's hard to fight against God. And when we fight against God, we're only hurting ourselves. And that's true. On the other hand, I also like to think that the perhaps this was Jesus's way of saying to Paul, Paul, this is against your true nature. This isn't you. It's hard to do these things when inside you're feeling this, this pricking sensation, like you know it isn't right. You're resisting the spirit of your own eternal character. Stop. Stop resisting the Paul inside the soul. Question number three, what does Ananias teach us about working with people who are trying to change? Ananias is is a great character in his own right. And he's got some important transformational truths to teach us too. It's hard for us sometimes to allow people to change. Ananias's first reaction to the Lord's instruction is fairly understandable. Uh, he, he resists the idea a little bit. It's like he says, you want me to go help who? Saul? Are you kidding me? I've heard of this man and all the evil that he's done. Are we talking about the same person here? Saul of Tarsus? You want me to go lay my hands on him? I'll go lay my hands on him, all right. For us, it might be like God saying, uh, go give Osama bin Laden a blessing. But to Ananias' credit, he doesn't question for very long. He accepts God's will quickly and willingly. And I love his first words to Saul. 
What are they? Brother Saul. He, he's already willing to see Saul as his brother. And he blesses him, and he feeds him, and he strengthens him. Is there a truth in that? We need to allow people to change, help them to change, strengthen them in their efforts to change. Sometimes it's hard for us to do that. We're so used to seeing them in a certain light that we, we, we can't see them in any other. And we try to keep them in the labeled boxes that we've placed them in. And if they try to get out, we metaphorically seek to shove them back in. I gather when we sense that somebody is trying to change, hopefully we don't judge them or refuse to remove the labels that we've put on them. We can be Ananias and see the person, the new person within them, and treat them as such, to see the brother Paul and not the sinful Saul. Speaking of seeing people, question four, how did God see Saul? The Lord says in verse 15, that Saul was a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What does that teach us about God's eyes? What did God see in Saul? God saw his potential, and I believe that's how he sees all of us. God sees the potential in a person and not the problem. He envisions the delicious popped popcorn and not the mess of kernels and oil. Now, I think that it's important for us to point out that Paul was not destined to be this chosen vessel or this amazing missionary, like, like it was inevitable. Paul still had his agency in all of this. God gave him the message, which was more like a warning for him to stop persecuting the church. But what were the first words out of Paul's mouth after he has this, after he hears this warning on the road to Damascus? I love his question. He says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord gives him instructions and he does it. Paul was willing to listen. He was willing to seek out God's will and do it. He was willing to change. To, to put himself into God's power. That, that's what's required to do a spiritual 180. That's how you do it. You put yourself into God's power. You put yourself into the microwave. Metaphorically speaking, I, I just realized how that sounded, but, but you know what I mean. God will help us to do the rest. We don't have to do it alone. God is, is willing to send us Ananiases. He can perform miracles in our lives. He can remove the scales from our eyes and help us to see the light that we were once blind to. God will help to completely change him. Now that got me thinking a little bit. Why would God choose somebody like Saul to be a chosen vessel? And maybe he knew something about Saul or, or Paul's nature. To me, it seemed like Saul was an all or nothing kind of person. 
when he was a persecutor, he put his whole heart into it. He, he was going to be the best darn persecutor that he could. He was dedicated to the extreme. I mean, he's, he's willing to travel all the way to Damascus just to arrest these, these filthy Christians and bring them bound to stand trial for their blasphemy. But with a loving nudge on the road to Damascus, God redirected all that dedication and zeal into the work of the ministry. And he is dedicated. No other apostle seems to match his efforts and sacrifice and willingness to preach. Paul is going to crisscross the ancient world, facing all kinds of suffering and persecution, just for the chance to share the gospel with more people. And also, I think that the Lord needed somebody like Saul who, who understood what it was like to be on the other side. Somebody who knew that change was possible. Sometimes the best person to help others to change is somebody who has been changed themselves. Maybe, maybe one more quick thought from verse 16. When God says, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Maybe there's some poetic justice in choosing Saul. Saul made a lot of people suffer for Christ's name's sake. And now he was going to get to feel what it was like to be on the receiving end of that persecution. God wasn't saying, Saul, I'm going to choose you to be this great leader in my church, an amazing missionary, and you're going to be famous, and you'll become one of the most important figures in Christian history. And uh, he's like, I'm going to call you to suffer great things for me. This is not going to be easy. So with, with all of these things we've taken a look at, uh, what are some of the transformational truths that we've learned? First and foremost, People can change. But also, people are more likely to change through love than condemnation. We should allow and help people to change. The Ananias principle. And God sees the potential, not the problem. To liken the scriptures, do you know anybody like Saul? Somebody who did a, a spiritual 180 in their life? Maybe it's you. What is their or your road to Damascus story? Please share. For me, I do know people who have made major changes in their life. I believe the Lord often sends people road to Damascus-like experiences to give them an opportunity to change. It's not just people like Saul who, who are the only ones who get this kind of help. Paul's road to Damascus came in the form of a vision, but they could also come in the form of experiences, opportunities, or realizations. I know of a young man in my neighborhood growing up who was very much going down the wrong path in his life when a nearly fatal motorcycle accident altered his perspective. He changed and became a dedicated disciple of Christ. That was his road to Damascus. I know of a young woman who met and fell in love with a, a certain young man. But she realized that if she wanted to marry that kind of young man, that she needed to be a certain kind of young woman. She changed. 
That was her road to Damascus. I know of a man who a death in his family became a type of road to Damascus for him. And he changed. You never know when our road to Damascus might come. But I hope that when they do come, that we'll be the types of people that are willing to ask Paul's question. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And then do it like he did, with zeal and undying dedication. Now, now to supplement this powerful principle of change, there's another individual in these first chapters of Acts that illustrates the same truth, but with just a slight nuance. That person is Peter. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on this, but let me just walk you through this thought. You might want to add this to your discussion about Paul. Maybe some of your students can't relate as well to Paul. Chances are, if you're teaching them, they're, they're probably pretty good people. And they, they don't need complete spiritual overhauls like Paul did. And in that case, maybe they could relate more to Peter. Now, Peter was a very good man to begin with. He was never an enemy to Christ. He did have some weaknesses, though, and often demonstrated his failure to understand Christ. Well, he changed, too. He, too, undergoes a transformation. He goes from Simon the fisherman to Peter the rock. And you may consider showing them this chart. Uh, we've got on the on the Simon the fisherman side, we've got the Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter's words to Christ when he's first called. We've got the story of him sinking in the water on the Sea of Galilee as he attempts to walk to Jesus. And Jesus says, O thou of little faith. We've got Jesus rebuking him with a get thee behind me, Satan. He falls asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus reprimands him with could you not watch with me one hour? He cuts off the ear of the officer in the garden. Got the very well-known story of him denying Christ in Caiaphas' palace. And then Jesus has to remind him to not forget to go out and feed his sheep after the resurrection. Then, here in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, we're going to see Peter, the rock. In Acts, he, he converts thousands with his powerful testimony. He heals the lame man in Acts 3. He testifies boldly to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, like we talked about last week. And in this week's chapters, he raises a woman named Tabitha from the dead. It's in Acts 9. He's going to be given the charge to take the gospel to the Gentiles through a magnificent dream in Acts chapter 10. And then we're going to watch him lead the church diligently throughout the rest of the New Testament. Ultimately, we know that he's going to give his very life as a martyr. We learn that from the prophecy that Jesus makes back in John chapter 21. So maybe, maybe you can relate a little more to this idea. Yes, God can take a very bad man like Saul and make him into a Paul. 
but he can also take a very good man like Peter and make him into something even better. We, we don't all need to be Paul's and Alma the Younger's. We can be Peter's and Nephi's as well. Remember that God sees the potential, not the problem. And we've all got problems. We all need to change. Just as long as we're willing to ask, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Like both Peter and Paul did. Then, then he can do, and he will do, glorious things with us. Because, because Paul and Peter are such pivotal players in the rest of the New Testament, I'd probably focus my attention there this week. But if you have more time, that theme of change can guide you through some of the other chapters this week as well. There are some other transformational truths that we could look at. So, so I wouldn't spend much time in Acts chapter 6 other than to summarize the fact that the apostles decide to choose seven additional leaders to help bear the burden of administration in the church. And one of those selected leaders is a man named Stephen. And Stephen is such a powerful speaker and leader uh, amongst the disciples that he's eventually arrested under false pretenses and brought before the Sanhedrin or the Jewish council. And Acts chapter 7 recounts the details of Stephen's trial before the Jewish leaders. And I just want to walk you through this for a minute. Stephen does something very ironic here in his discourse which I'm sure was incredibly baffling to the Jewish leaders while he's doing it. But when you do understand what he's doing, you understand why the council is so angry with him at the end. The vast majority of Acts chapter 7 is Stephen giving a lesson on Jewish history. From verses 1 through 50, starting at Abraham and going down through Isaac and Jacob and Moses, he gives them this, this history lesson. What's ironic about that? Well, these are the Jewish leaders. This is the, the, the high council. They know these things. I can just see them scratching their heads and saying, why is he sharing this with us? We've basically got the Pentateuch memorized. We know our history. It'd be like us sitting the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve down and saying, all right, I'm going to teach you about a man named Joseph Smith and how he restored the true church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. But why is Stephen doing this? Let me, let me point out a few verses here. As he talks about Moses in verse 25, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them but they understood not. Then in verse 35, this Moses whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. Then he reminds them of something Moses said in verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. And then verse 39, To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. 
with each of these stories, he's giving them examples of people who had rejected the prophets of the past, how they had rejected Moses. And I'm sure they're still confused until Stephen lowers the boom in verses 51 through 53. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which shewed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And do you see what he's just done? All this time, they thought he was referring to their fathers as Abraham and Jacob and Moses because they believe that they are the children of Abraham and Isaac and Moses. But Stephen is saying, no, no, your fathers are the ones who rejected Abraham and Moses. You see the principle that he's insinuating here? Because they have rejected the Savior and the prophets of their own day, he's saying that they would not have accepted the prophets of the past. He's saying that if they had lived in Abraham's or Moses' day, they would have rejected them. They would have been on that side of things. So their fathers were the stiff-necked and the uncircumcised of heart. And these were people who viewed themselves deeply as Moses' disciples. But Stephen says, you would have rejected Moses. You understand why they get so angry now? And that principle, that truth, I think is important for all of us to understand. If I reject the prophets of my day, I would have rejected the prophets of the past. That's how you know how you would have acted back then. And that that's the negative way of looking at it. But the nice thing is that principles always come in twos. You can also flip that statement to, to find another equally important truth. Have you ever wondered if you would have had the faith to cross the plains with the pioneers? Would you have had the faith to follow Jesus Christ? When he taught the Sermon on the Mount? Would you have had the faith to stay true to Moses as you traveled to the promised land? Would you have been more of a Nephi or a layman had you been with Lehi? And, and we might be tempted to say, I don't know if I would, or I can't imagine. I would not have had the faith to do what the pioneers do. But you do know the answer to that question. You have a way of knowing. Because if you follow and accept the prophet of your own day, you know that you would have accepted the prophets of the past. So the only question to really consider here is, do I believe in and follow closely the counsel of Russell M. Nelson? And if you can answer that question with a yes then you know something. You would have followed Brigham Young across the plains. You would have stayed true to Moses. You would have followed Jesus. Kind of nice to know that. And, 
And what's the connection with change in this chapter? What's the transformational truth? Here's a group of people that refuse to change. They're given the opportunity. They're being given a road to Damascus moment. Stephen has held up the mirror of the scriptures to help them see who they really are. But instead of changing and having their hearts pricked by the Holy Ghost, instead of doing a spiritual 180 like Paul did, their hearts are cut and they resist the Holy Ghost. So the conclusion of our story, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. This is, that's an important story for us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, doctrinally speaking, as far as our doctrine of the Godhead is concerned. But moving on. And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Remember, Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Kind of like what Christ did. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Or he died. The Sanhedrin, they don't like the truth coming out of his mouth. It hurts too much. So instead of listening to it and changing like Paul did, they decide to silence the voice. Instead of asking, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? They gnash on him with their teeth, which means they yell at him. They cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears. I, I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me I need to change. They cast him out and they stone him to death. Refusing to change can lead us to do dreadful things. One more story to take a look at in Acts chapter 8. So for an icebreaker, I might just show my students some of my favorite missionary memes from the internet. Uh, as a teacher, I usually have displayed on my screen uh, at the beginning of every class an inspirational quote, uh, a Mormon ad, if you know what those are, and a couple of funny church-related memes or comics. So I've collected these over the years, and, and these are some of my favorite missionary-themed memes. You could just uh, enjoy these for a second. Or at least, at least I do. I think they're funny. Well, Acts chapter 8 has a great missionary story that I feel can help all of us to be better missionaries. In this chapter, we encounter somebody who was willing to change, and we get to see a master missionary at work and the part that he plays in this process. The story's in verses 26 through 40. And, and, and 
These verses contain lots of insights on becoming effective missionaries. So that's our question. How is Philip a good example of effective missionary work? One way to teach this story would be to play a little game called Principal Hunt with your class. And with this activity, depending on the size of, of your class, uh, I divide my students into teams of two to six players and give each team a small whiteboard to write their answers on. And the goal is to be the first team to identify the true principle that a specified verse or phrase teaches us. And the team member with the whiteboard writes their answer and holds it up. But, but everybody helps to discuss and to decide which principle is the best match. And I'll typically provide every team with a handout with all of the principles on it, or, or I'll display this slide up on my screen for them. I also let them know that not every principle on this list is going to be used. Whichever team has the most points by the end wins. And although I know games don't always lend themselves to deep, meaningful discussions about principles, I found that this particular activity doesn't tend to get too unruly and, and still provides you with a chance to have a short discussion about each principle or idea as you go through so, so that the purpose of the activity hits the mark of really helping them to understand missionary principles. So here we go. Uh, the teacher provides a phrase or, or reads a part of the story. And when they're done, then the students are free to answer their questions, put their guests. Phrase number one, verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. That's just the beginning of verse 27. The answer is, I. Go where the Lord wants you to go. If you do, you will find yourself at the right place at the right time. And here with that principle, I might emphasize President Nelson's recent reminder that every worthy and able young man should serve a mission. When the Lord calls us to go somewhere, we should answer. Phrase number two, continuing verse 27. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet, or Isaiah. The answer here would be, gee, the gospel is for everyone, even the rich and powerful. This man had great authority and was employed by royalty. I think that sometimes it's possible for us to overemphasize the fact that it's the humble and the poor that typically respond to the gospel message, which is true. But we mustn't forget that everybody deserves a chance to know and to be invited to follow Christ. Just because somebody's rich or influential doesn't mean that they're automatically going to reject your message. Phrase number three, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him. The answer is E. The Spirit will lead you to opportunities to share. Follow its promptings immediately and with enthusiasm. Being open and obedient 
to the promptings of the Spirit is absolutely critical in becoming an effective missionary. A missionary needs to become in tune with that voice, know how to recognize it, and then follow it, run to follow it uh, when those promptings come. Phrase number four, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And in the succeeding verses, the man asks Philip his question. And he's reading Isaiah, and he's confused by what Isaiah means. <laughs> Go figure. Then jumping to verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. The match here is B. Understand the scriptures well enough yourself to be able to help those that don't understand them. Reminds me what the Lord taught Hiram Smith in Doctrine and Covenants 11.21. Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. And then shall your tongue be loosed. Then, if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word. Yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. See, you've got to have something yourself first before you can give it to somebody else. That's why I always encourage my seminary students to take advantage of seminary. It's their opportunity to obtain the Word so that then they can go out and help other people to understand it. Phrase number five. This also comes from verse 35, but I like to highlight this phrase all on its own. Then Philip opened his mouth. The answer is L. You've got to be willing to open your mouth. If you do, the Spirit will fill it with the words to say. Sometimes that's all we need to do. And we might fret and we might worry that when the moment comes, we won't know what to say. But if we just demonstrate enough faith to open our mouths and begin speaking, I think you're going to find that the Spirit inspires us, gives us the word. Phrase six, and as they went their way, they came into a certain water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And he went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The match is J. Help them to understand the importance of ordinances, especially baptism. Phrase number seven. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. The match is F. Missionary work brings joy. And this verse tells us of the joy that the Ethiopian man felt at his baptism. But certainly Philip must have been feeling the same joy too. That, that seems to be the emotion that is most connected with missionary labor in the scriptures. The idea of, of joy. Missionary work brings joy. Phrase number eight. 
And then finally, phrase 8, But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. The match is C. Missionary work is never done. Continue to be diligent in teaching even after success. We never want to just rest on our laurels when it comes to missionary work. Missionary work is a lifelong responsibility and pursuit. Just because we're released as full-time missionaries, it doesn't mean that our charge to share the gospel is over. Just because we experience a success with somebody doesn't mean that we've done our part and, and now we can move on with our own lives. Philip kept preaching after his success. So should we. So now, with all those great uh, missionary insights to liken the scriptures, as they look back over that list of principles and truths of missionary work, you can ask the following question. When have you seen the truth of one of these statements in your own efforts to share the gospel? And one of my favorite principles from this list is the simple principle that missionary work equals joy. As it says in Doctrine and Covenants 1815, And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring, save it be, one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of life. Have you ever felt that joy before? There's nothing quite like it. It's so worth it. The joy of missionary work is worth any sacrifice, any discomfort, and any challenge. The Ethiopian man felt it. Philip felt it. And I hope that we all get a chance to feel that joy many times over in our lives. And so there you have it, my friends. Did you see? Did you see that theme of conversion, that theme of transformation and change, all throughout this week's chapters? Such such a good week uh, to teach. Now, uh, teachers, if you'd like access to some of the resources that I make for teachers and their lessons, the handouts, the PowerPoint slides, lesson plans, just go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links that will will guide you to those resources. If you felt this lesson was helpful that the best thing that you could do would be to share the channel uh, with somebody else family member share it on social media uh, or, or just hit the like button subscribe make a comment all of those things will help push the channel out to more and more people and, and hopefully uh, bless the lives of, of teachers and students of the scriptures everywhere and I really really appreciate you spending this time with me and I, I hope that you'll join me again next week. Thank you so much for watching, everybody. Now get out there and teach with power.